from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, your host for today's show on reproductive rights. When I was in college, a history professor asked our class a deceptively simple question. What was the most important innovation in modern American history? We shot out our answers. The airplane, penicillin, the telephone, the car. If this wasn't 1987, we would have certainly said the computer. He stood there, though, shaking his head back and forth and then explained that it was the birth control pill. That with this single pharmaceutical innovation, women could reliably control their own fertility for the first time in human history. And with this radical advancement, women could then control the timing and size of their families, protect their own health, enter and remain in the workforce, and develop an economic independence that was completely unprecedented. Fast forward 30 years, and issues surrounding reproductive rights are at the core of our national division and an important point of friction in the women's movement, making those rights as vulnerable as they have ever been. So today, we're going to examine the relationship between the current challenges to our reproductive rights, the concept of reproductive justice, and how they impact our ability to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. To help us explore these issues, we brought in two national experts. Our guest in the first half hour is going to be Gretchen Borschelt. She's the Vice President for Reproductive Rights and Health at the National Women's Law Center. And in our second half hour, we'll be speaking with Jamila Taylor. She's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. If you have questions for us or you'd like to join in the conversation, our phones are open. You can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We're going to be joined by Gretchen Borschelt, Vice President for Reproductive Rights and Health at the National Women's Law Center. Gretchen oversees the center's advocacy policy and education strategies to promote the quality and availability of health care, including reproductive health care. Prior to becoming vice president, Gretchen served as senior counsel and director of state reproductive health policy, directing the center's state-based legal and policy efforts to protect and expand access to reproductive health care, and linking that work to the center's federal reproductive health advocacy. Prior to joining the center in 2005, she was at the Physicians for Human Rights and was a women's law and public policy fellow at the National Partnership for Women and Families. So certainly an expert on the subject and somebody who's committed, I think, most of her professional life to advancing these causes. So Gretchen, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me. And I love that story at the beginning about the class. I think that is such an important illustration of what we're talking about today. I'm, I'm glad you appreciate it. And, and kudos to Martin Novelli, who is the press, professor who brought it to our attention. Um, so, Gretchen, right now, from your perspective, what are the most important policy issues that are on the table? Well, you know, right now there are some members of Congress who basically want to do a whole bunch of things that would take away policies that have been put in place to help women access reproductive health care, which helps them have a career and work. And so we're talking about things like repealing the Affordable Care Act or defunding Planned Parenthood or putting restrictions on women's ability to get an abortion or get birth control, either at the federal or state level, where we've seen a ton of restrictions passed. So it's kind of an onslaught right now. And I think a lot of that is because of our new president and the new administration who's made some of these a priority. Um, We really have seen a bunch of um, new measures being introduced and state legislators in particular are feeling emboldened to pass new restrictions on reproductive health care access. How much of this, from the legislators' point of view, is about abortion and how much of it is about finances? You know, they are talking about abortion. They are not thinking about what it means for a woman, a woman who's living paycheck to paycheck and who can't access abortion and what it means for her life, being pushed deeper into poverty or having to give up a job in order to take care of a kid that maybe she wasn't ready to have. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is that those who are pushing bad policies or want to get rid of the good policies aren't connecting it to the real-life experiences of women and families. Since we know that the real-life experience of women is that abortions will happen whether or not they're legal, it's a question of how safe they are, mm-hmm. and that preventing them is the, preventing the need is the real issue. 
What part of these policies are about limiting access to contraception? Yeah, so this talk of repealing the Affordable Care Act, one of the most important and most popular provisions of the law is a requirement that insurance plans cover birth control, every method of birth control without having the woman pay anything when she goes to get that birth control. So when you go to pick up your pill at the pharmacy or you go to get an IUD placed, you don't have a cost then. And that has been such a game changer for women. Before we had this requirement, when women were spending between 30 and 44% of their total out-of-pocket costs just on birth control. And that's because birth control can be really expensive. An IUD, which is very effective, is also very expensive. It can be close to $1,000 out of pocket. And so if you're talking about a minimum wage worker, that's equivalent to nearly a month's salary. They're not going to be able to choose that more effective, more long-acting method. But now things are different. And this law means that women can choose the birth control method that's right for them without having to have cost be an obstacle. And it so does- we know... Yeah, go ahead. Does this apply to women who are receiving their health insurance um, through the Affordable Care Act only, or does it apply to women who are receiving health insurance through their private employers? It's across the board. So any new insurance plan, whether you're getting it through the marketplace set up by the Affordable Care Act, whether you're getting it through your private employer-based plan, whether you're getting it through the Medicaid expansion. So it is an across-the-board nationwide change that has meant so much for women, not only in their bottom line, because we know already in one year, this benefit saved women about $1.4 billion just on the pill. $1.4 billion on the pill. On the pill. That is staggering. Yeah, it's making a difference for women's bottom line, their families spending, right? But then on the other hand, it's making a difference for their economic security and their education and their ability to move forward in their careers, as, as we talked about at the top, right? Having access to birth control that can help you prevent or plan and space your pregnancy means that you can do all of those things. Like, Go to grad school. <laughs> yes. Get that job <laughs> that right. you wanted. Or in the cases of the 15 to 19-year-olds, 42% of whom are sexually active, it means they can graduate from high school. That's right. That's right. And that it makes a big, big difference. We work with those young women. And, you know, to be able to put that on hold, <laughs> to put pregnancy on hold and to finish that education and not to be penalized if you're pregnant in school, which happens a lot, they get pushed out of schools. Mm-hmm. So to be able to complete education really is making a difference to those young girls. There's also an intersection of issues that I want to make sure I understand properly, um, which is that birth, there's an, an aspect of birth control that is used for health care. It's not necessarily used to prevent pregnancy, but it's used for a whole range of women's health care issues. Like That's an right. IUD can be used to prevent fibroid tumors. And birth control pills can be used for a range of maladies that have nothing to do with preventing pregnancy. But with these proposed changes, because these treatments count as birth control, they're also at risk, yes? Oh, that's right. Women use birth control for a range of medical reasons, treating endometriosis, treating other kinds of diseases. And of course, there are, it's proven that birth control helps with things like cancer prevention and other, other health benefits. So to take away birth control from women not only will affect their ability to prevent pregnancy and plan and space those pregnancies, but also could hurt women's health. Now, you've, it seems like you've worked your whole career in trying to address these issues. Which (laughs) which suggests to me that you also have a very real understanding of what the other side is working towards. Mm -hmm. As I look at this, I'm dumbfounded because it seems to me like it's an assault on women. They won't admit that it's an assault on women. What do they think they're trying to protect by by eroding this law? That is such a good question. It's hard to get into that mind frame, which seems so divorced from our reality. Mm -hmm. But I think at base, what they want is women to play a role of wife and mother that many of us do play, Yes, (laughs) but also also participate in our nation's economy and participate in the workforce. And it's that part of it, I think, that they are resisting, that women are now, you know, the primary breadwinners in a lot of families. And they don't want that. They don't like that. 
idea. They still want the male household uh, head. And they don't like the idea of women who aren't married having sex. I mean, that's another thing that this is rooted in, is kind of fear and disgust at sex. And Even so, though, who are know, these women having sex with then? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. So we know that these issues clearly affect all of us, regardless of where we're getting our insurance from um, and regardless of our age and why we're seeking out these treatments. But who is the most vulnerable and why? So we know that low-income women are especially vulnerable, obviously, because they don't have the ability to, um, you know, take on extra costs. They're living paycheck to paycheck. And so things like restrictions on their access to reproductive health care really, really hurts them. You know, right now there are 25 states that don't allow insurance plans to cover abortion. So a woman wait, wait, wait. might not... Wait, wait, yes. back up. There are 25 states that don't allow insurance plans to cover abortion? That's right. That's a little-known, unfortunate part That's... of the Affordable Care Act. Okay. Is that it said states could step in and ban coverage of abortion, and 25 states have done it. So you can imagine a woman who is living paycheck to paycheck and doesn't have that coverage, and she needs it. What and does so, that mean for her? And so right now that means that women who are in these states where the Affordable Care Act does not cover abortion, does that mean that they're going to other states to get abortions or they have to live without them or pay for them out of pocket? They have to live without them or pay out of pocket. Okay, because their we coverage know. is related to where they live, not where they pr receive medical services. That's exactly the right. Exactly right. And we know that there was one study that showed that women who can't get an abortion are more likely to be in poverty two years later because they're going to have all of the other costs of having a child. And having a child is a huge economic decision, right? Um, and of course, we know that women are often paid less. Women often aren't able to find affordable child care. There are a lot of costs that go along with having a child. And that kind of cost shouldn't be forced on anyone until they're ready to have it. Absolutely. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. And I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Gretchen Borschelt, Vice President for Reproductive Rights and Health at the National Women's Law Center. If you have a question about what we're discussing or would like to join in the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's one 844-942-7866. So, Gretchen, it seems like there's these very simple equations. When the more children you have, the less money you have per child. The more children you have, the, the less you can't go to work as much. Right. And it sounds like this is predominantly affecting women who absolutely cannot afford child care. Right. And it's not only child care and affording that. It's also things like your employer's willingness to give you paid leave. Right? Mm -hmm. Some employers don't provide leave when you're recovering from childbirth or sick leave so that you can take a child to the doctor or otherwise care for a sick child. Um, we know a lot of women in low-wage jobs who have scheduling practices that don't give them any flexibility. So they don't have a reliable schedule that they can plan around for child care or other purposes, or they may not know day to day if, they're, if they have to go in. And so it's all of these things added together that really harm women and make it difficult for women who want to have children to actually be able to afford to do so. So when we look at this nationally, it's, these economic issues are very clear. And when we look at it globally, there's also um, an additional health risk, which is that one out of eight mothers globally die from pregnancy for some complication in the process. And the more children they have, the more at risk they are. To what degree is that also an issue here in the United States? Oh, it's absolutely an issue. And we know that childbirth is actually riskier for women than abortion, which is a safe procedure, uh, especially when it's performed early. The problem is that there are so many restrictions being piled upon women by states forcing women to delay the abortion, to give her time to think about her decision, forcing a woman to go to a clinic twice, forcing a woman to go get information about what she's doing before she can have the procedure. All of this is forcing patients to go later into pregnancy. And we know that nearly 60% of abortion patients who experienced a delay did so because they had to make the arrangements and raise the money to pay for it. Mm -hmm. The later you get, the more expensive it is. So it's kind of a cycle that builds upon itself where you're trying to 
get help early, but you can't because of all the restrictions that are in place and because you have to raise money. And then by delaying it, not only do you have to raise more money, but your health is being put at greater risk. If Since we know that abortions were performed and sought in all kinds of heinous, damaging ways, I mean, throughout history, um, because to a woman who is pregnant, not by choice, um, that will become a difficult decision, but a compelling one. And that women have permanently destroyed their fertility. Women have died from unsafe abortions. Um, To what degree are these policies adjusting for the medical care that these women need on the other side? Because the policies are not going to stop it. Right. There's no there's no thought to that, I will say. It's the same with um, legislators who claim to be pro-life, but all they care about is making sure that the woman doesn't have an abortion. They don't support child care that's affordable. They don't support paid leave. They're not making sure that employers accommodate pregnant women on the job. So it's a very hypocritical statement from a lot of these lawmakers who are passing laws that restrict access to birth control or abortion, but don't help women in other areas. How are these affecting, how are these policy changes affecting women who are self-employed? Well, that's a good question. I think, you know, women who are self-employed are in a better position now and that they can get affordable, comprehensive health care from the Affordable Care Act, right? So before, that wasn't an option for a lot of people. The individual market really failed women. Insurance plans charged women more than men. They denied women coverage if they had a pre-existing condition, which plans considered pregnancy or being a survivor of domestic violence or rape. So women were denied coverage Because before. of... I, I'm I'm flabbergasted. Yeah, that pregnancy could be seen as a pre-existing condition. Absolutely, absolutely. So, for these women um, who right now are protected by the Affordable Care Act, what options are they going to have if it goes away? I think we'll be back to this system of discrimination and women scrambling to find any kind of insurance that will help them. You know, the other important thing about the Affordable Care Act is that it helped to eliminate job lock. So people used to stay on the job because they had good insurance. So a lot of women wouldn't be self-employed, right? We we now have new women entrepreneurs and business owners because they know that there are these marketplaces there where they can get coverage that actually is affordable and can meet their needs. So eliminating the Affordable Care Act not only will hurt self-employed women, but will hurt people who are working and might want to change jobs or try something new. And as we learned on a previous show, there are over about 1,300 women start a new business in this country every single day. That has the capacity to be a huge economic driver. That's right. And it's not like they're taking jobs away from men, in case that's what people are fearing. (laughs) They're actually contributing to a dynamic economy, yet they're not going to be able to do that if they can't control their own fertility. That's right. That's right. And And it's also important to remember that the healthcare law itself is a job creator. And if repeal happens, that could lead to a loss of 2.6 2.6 million jobs. That was one estimate that just came out by by in the next two years. Okay. So 2.6 million jobs just making the Affordable Care Act train run on time. Yes. Okay. So it, it, it the ripple effect is on two different levels. Right, right. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Gretchen Borschelt, who's the Vice President for Reproductive Rights and Health at the National Women's Law Center. If you have a question about what you're discussing, discussing, would like to chime in, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Gretchen, talk to me about what the center is doing right now to protect us. You know, we are working hard to pull back these ideas about repealing the Affordable Care Act or defunding Planned Parenthood and trying to put a personal face on this issue, right? Because we know that these members of Congress aren't thinking about what it means for the individual woman. And so we're doing our best to tell the story and to encourage our members and constituents to weigh in with their member of Congress to say, this is what this law has meant to me. This is what getting rid of it would mean. This is what I would lose. And it's so important that they hear directly from people with real stories, because they're just pushing policy without thinking through the real life 
reality. And what's the most effective way to do that? Is it by sending emails? Is it calling? Is it writing handwritten letters? Is it responding when the National Organization of Women says, click this button and register your name? What are the most impactful things we can do? Right now, what we're seeing as being super impactful are going to meet legislators in town halls where they're in their districts, they're with their constituents, and there's a recess coming up next week where lawmakers are going to be out in their states doing these town halls. Go to those town hall meetings, raise your voice, tell your story there, person to person. They can't ignore that. Um, but if you can't make one of those, please call, please tweet. I know a woman who's, whose daughter has a pre-existing condition and is covered by the Affordable Care Act, and she literally tweets a, do- a picture of her daughter to her lawmaker every single day to say, <laughs> this is who would be hurt if you repealed this law. So get creative and think about <laughs> new ways to reach out to your legislator. <laughs> um, one of the questions I also have is on the flip side. Where can business have a role in this? One of the places where I'm putting my hopes is that even if they're not driven ethically, um, or, or rather from a moral perspective of giving women every chance to succeed in the workplace, businesses increasingly recognize that they need a diverse talent pool in order to succeed. And I think Hidden figure, Figures told the story in a really compelling way that the drive to innovate will help us override a lot of our biases. If businesses are committed to innovating and overcoming our biases and helping women stay in the workplace, what can they do in this? That's such an important point. Businesses have a real role to play here in speaking out about the importance of policies that help women in the workplace. Well, help families, right? Paid leave, for example. Businesses have been stepping forward to say that it's important to them and that it helps their business to get women to come back to work for them. Um, So there's a role here for businesses to speak out and talk about the importance of these policies to their workforce and show that they value women workers. Absolutely. We have a call coming in from Bill. Bill, thank you so much for listening to Women at Work and calling in. What's on your mind? Hi, thanks. So I was listening to your show and kind of the um, dynamics you brought up with regard to the Affordable Health Care Act its effect on women entrepreneurs, as well as small businesses, and how it can put uh, two point something million people out of work. Um, you know, I'm curious about two things. The first is, what is your recommendation then that they do? Because the current Affordable Health Care Act has actually shown to significantly rise in premiums. Um, it's more government run than, uh, than privately run, uh, less efficiency. And then Secondly, you know, um, I think we're talking about not just women, but all entrepreneurs being able to um, retain some of the benefits of the Affordable Health Care Act, but uh, have access to um, the, the, the whole paradigm of the workforce. Um, and where I'm going with that is that you've got people who uh, are, are trying to avert the pre-existing conditions, being able to switch jobs and such, but on the entrepreneurial world, their ability to get in on a non-affordable health care act plan is significantly less, um, and I've personally experienced that. So what say you? Gretchen? So, yeah, so I think one of the problems is that these discussions about repealing the Affordable Care Act, they're talking about trying to get rid of certain parts but keeping other parts. And the thing is, it works as a whole. You have to have all of the pieces together in order to make sure that everything is working and that you it doesn't unravel. That's the real concern, is that if you pull away parts of it, everything will unravel and fall apart. That's why health care insurance plans have chimed in. That's why employers have chimed in to say, don't get rid of this law. So we can't really do a piecemeal approach. And that's the problem that we're seeing right now from members of Congress, is that they think they can take away some and leave other bits. And by the way, still haven't even proposed a replacement plan um, that really would meet and provide all of the benefits that are there right now for people. So it seems like finding a replacement plan that's really thoroughly considered is the key issue. So, Bill, thank you so much for calling. We appreciate your question and your um, sharp observation of the challenges that some people are facing. If you'd like to join us in the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Gretchen, if people want to get involved 
specifically with um, the National Women's Law Center? What are ways that they can support your work or get involved in furthering it? So I'd love for them to visit our website, www.nwlc.org. There's lots of information there, not only on women's access to reproductive health care services, but across the board, uh, a woman's needs across her lifespan. And go to our Facebook page and check out our Twitter account. We are actively working right now on all of these issues, not just on stopping the bad stuff, but also on pushing forward some proactive and positive policy, especially in the states that are going to help women workers. So with the few minutes that we have left, what are some of those proactive policies that you're initiating? Yeah, so we have seen some really exciting momentum at the state level to introduce comprehensive packages that benefit women workers across the board. So it's not just, for example, providing paid leave. It's not just helping them have reliable schedules. It's all of those things put together because we know people don't live their life in silos. And if they're having a problem in one area, it's going to affect all these other areas. And so measures supporting women's reproductive health care access are included among that. One provision in particular is to tell employers, you can't discriminate against a woman if she has an abortion or if she uses birth control or if she wait, decides wait, wait, to start Wait a, a second. Wait a second. Is it actually legal now? for employers to discriminate or say fire a woman because she uses birth control? Well, I wouldn't say it's legal, but there are employers who are doing it. So in one case, there was a teacher who was uh, four months pregnant, and she got married two months into her pregnancy, and her employer said, wait a second, you're four months pregnant, but you only got married two months ago. That means you had sex outside of marriage, and that's against our religious beliefs. You're fired. So we've seen this happen where employers are telling women, we don't like the decisions you're making, and we're going to fire you for it. So we're helping to pass laws that make it absolutely clear, no doubt, that this is not allowed. And that's part of this package, to help women stay in the workplace and not be discriminated against. Well, Gretchen, I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing in general and for joining us today here on Women at Work. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and thanks to all your listeners. Indeed. So stay with me. After the break, we're going to be joined by Jamila Taylor. She's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, back for the second half of our show on women's reproductive rights, what they include, why they matter, and the impact of proposed policy changes on women and their families. My next guest is Jamila Taylor. She's a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Jamila has more than 18 years of public policy and advocacy experience beginning her career as a congressional staff member in the office of Representative Robert C. Scott, a Democrat from Virginia, in the late 1990s. Before she joined the Center for American Progress, Jamila was a senior policy advisor at IPASS, a global non-governmental organization dedicated to ending preventable deaths and disabilities from unsafe abortion and helping women realize their sexual and reproductive rights. From 2007 to 2009, Taylor worked as the senior public policy associate for the Center for Health and Gender Equity, or CHANGE. She's also worked on HIV-AIDS policy and advocacy for the AIDS Institute and on domestic abortion policy and advocacy for the National Network of Abortion Funds. Jamila, welcome to Women at Work. We're really grateful to have you here with us today. Great. Thank you for having me. So, Jamila, I want to start with what's the Center for American Progress? What's the mission and what does your particular work focus on? So the Center for American Progress is an independent, um, nonpartisan policy institute or think tank um, is, I think, the more um, sexy word um, for (laughs) the work that we do. And we are dedicated to improving the lives of Americans through bold, progressive 
ideas, as well as strong leadership and concerted action. So we really focus on developing new policy ideas, challenging the media to cover issues that really matter to the American people, and we also work to shape the national debate. So I want to zero in on one word in particular, which is progressive. Um, When you use that word, what does that include? Progressive means that we are focused on policy solutions and issues that are going to move the American people forward. You know, our work is really centered around ensuring opportunities for regular people in the country that are really working to make their lives better. Um, And so in terms of my particular area of focus, I focus on women's health and rights issues. So really working to make sure that women are leading healthy and productive lives, and they also have access to quality, um, safe abortion care, as well as contraception and other preventive services. Um, That is also interconnected with other aspects of their lives, like the ability to be productive and navigate the workforce and to take care of their families. So, Jamila, just like Gretchen in our first half hour, this seems like this isn't a job for you. This seems like it's your life's work. What drove Um, you to this? Absolutely. Um, Wow. I think the thing that drove me to this was, you know, I was working on Capitol Hill um, as a young woman and ended up in a situation where I was working to help a constituent um, of my boss access HIV AIDS um, medications through um, the AIDS Drug Assistance Program, also known as ADAP. Um, This was a woman who was single, um, who had children, and this program was particularly focused on ensuring access to AIDS medications for low-income individuals. And so through that, I got a real sense of the importance of women um, being able to have access to quality health care and how that also impacts their roles as mothers and, again, um, their opportunities um, economically. And so... That is really what brought me to this issue. And then, you know, at that point, I was really focused on, you know, leaving the Hill and taking my expertise to the advocacy side of this policy work. So one of the the terms that I've read about in looking at your work is the concept of reproductive justice. Yes. Can you help explain to us what what is it? What does it include? So reproductive justice is a framework that we use to conceptualize or envision issues around reproductive health and rights. So in that, we take into account the lived experiences of women, issues around race or discrimination, um, immigration status or socioeconomic status, and how they really impact inequality or how women have opportunities to access reproductive health care. And this is also an extricate strictly, sorry, linked with um, reproductive freedom um, and access to health care. And so once, you know, we talk a little bit more about the policy issues in particular, you know, I'll give more of, I think, an overview of the reproductive justice aspect of it and how one of the things that we'll see from this conversation, I think, is just the fact that um, there are certain groups of women that are disproportionately affected by some of these policies that are you know, at play right now. And that's precisely where the reproductive justice framework comes in. Actually, my next question was going to be, who is most at risk? Right. So when we think about issues around, you know, women's ability to access reproductive health care and the freedom to decide when and whether we want to have children, um, you know, really that being on our own terms. We know that from you know, research that's been done year after year that low-income women, women of color, and young women are disproportionately impacted by any sort of restrictions or barriers on access to women's health care. And so that's for a myriad of reasons. I also mentioned immigrant women Mm -hmm. um, as well. And so when we think about issues around coverage or even having money to pay any out-of-pocket costs, associated with health care. Those are communities that, um, you know, tend to, pe- tend to be, you know, disproportionately affected by restrictions or barriers. So um, I, I found a set of statistics that I thought were really fascinating that helped to, mm-hmm. I think, explain some of this. So we know that teen, teen pregnancy is a major issue, and you talk about young women. And the yeah. way that it affects women in these different groups 
is intensely different. Right. I mean, and part of that is because we know that, you know, the ability to be healthy and lead a healthy life does not happen in a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, women do not lead single-issue lives. Um, I think that's <laughs> one thing to, um, you know, highlight. And so our access to health care, how we interact with our health care provider, the decisions we make about our bodies and our the health and care of our families also impact our economic security. Um, it's also linked to our opportunities in the workforce, how we navigate in the workforce, whether or not we have flexibility on the job, um, what kind of policies are in place in our workplaces that support us if we're mothers, if we're pregnant women. So all of those things are linked with our experiences throughout life and how healthy we are. And so where the issue of justice comes in, is Mm -hmm. it that for these women, there are a set of um, challenges that they face just by virtue of who they are? Absolutely. So reproductive justice tells us that it's not just about having, you know, access to a certain birth control method or an abortion. You know, it's also about the experiences that we live in life um, that also dictate whether or not we are going to be healthy and whether or not we will actually attain that health care in a quality way, um, in a substantive way that's really going to impact how we live. And so that in a society where these women have fewer financial resources, fewer educational mm-hmm. resources, less access to um, education, contraception, um, and quality regular health care, um, just by virtue of their backgrounds, where they live, and their economic realities, by their right to be healthy and make choices about their own bodies and their lives starts to go away by virtue of their environment. Right, exactly. That's absolutely right. And so with the proposed policy changes, what are the ones that are going to affect them the most? Well, I think that um, in terms of what is going to affect these communities the most, and I think, you know, I sort of look at this issue or look at the policies based on sort of what is sort of out there right now and um, is currently being negotiated or deliberated at the federal level. And so one policy or one sort of effort that we have really been focusing in on our efforts to defund Planned Parenthood. Um, Planned Parenthood is an organization that works to serve millions of women across the country, not only with reproductive health care, but also basic, you know, sort of health needs like diabetes screenings, breast cancer screenings, um, and really the full continuum of access to health care. They largely serve low-income women, women of color, Um, They even serve immigrant women. And so they play a very important role in making sure that um, women who tend to be underserved have access to quality health care. I think another thing to note about Planned Parenthood health centers is that they're oftentimes the single source of health care for certain communities. And so making sure that they have the support that they need to operate Um, optimally is going to be important, not only for women as individuals, but I think for broader communities. They play a very important role in ensuring access to health care. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. I'm talking with Jamila Taylor from the Center for American Progress. If you have a question about what you're discussing, I keep saying that. If you have a question about what (laughs) we're discussing or you'd like to join in the conversation, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So I want to come back to something you were saying about Planned Parenthood that seems really Uh important. Um, Planned Parenthood seems to be synonymous with abortion in the public discourse, yet only 3% of the services that they provide are abortion services. Yeah, that's true. Um, That is true. And I think I do want to add, you know, while um, abortion does only make up 3% of, you know, the services that Planned Parenthood offers, um, abortion is a very important, important piece of the continuum of reproductive health care. So it is an important aspect of 
you know, the full array of services that Planned Parenthood provides. But you're right, it is important for the public to understand that it's not all that Planned Parenthood does. Um, And I think that with some of the discourse or conversations that we're hearing, you know, largely from, I think, conservatives, um, you know, they do want to sort of focus in on the abortion aspect of, you know, the services provided by Planned Parenthood, but it is a small percentage of the services they offer. Now, I've known, you know, through my whole adult life that Planned Parenthood is also a reliable source of contraception um, to test for and treat sexually transmitted diseases. Um, As you said, breast cancer screening. But you're also pointing out, I hadn't realized that for many women, it is their only source of medical care. Yes, absolutely. Their only source of medical care. And I'll also state, too, that, you know, Planned Parenthood, um, in terms of the funding that it receives from the, you know, through federal sources, um, you know, they are providing services for women who are accessing their health care, you know, through the Medicaid program, um, the Title X program, which is the domestic national, you know, family planning program. Um, so they are serving women um, who are really, you know, sort of low-income um, women in our communities. And so they play a very important role, not only in helping ensure access to health care, but also, I think, filling the health disparities gap as well when we talk about communities that are underserved. I'm glad that you brought up Medicaid and Title X, because Uh one of the things I have to admit I just recently learned is that that $500 million of government funding that represents Uh about 40 percent of the revenue to Planned Parenthood or 40 percent of their budget um, isn't in a blank check that the government writes. It's coming through Medicaid and Title X. Could you help us, me too, understand (laughs) how does that work? What What's Medicaid doing for them, and how is Title X working? Because I so think a lot of people don't understand what it is. So you're, when you say do for them, do you mean the women that are enrolled or yes. for Planned Parenthood? Yes. And, and then how does the money come into Planned Parenthood? So basically, you know, these are, um, in terms of Medicaid, um, Planned Parenthood is receiving um, support from Medicaid through reimbursement. So when a woman goes into... Um, a Planned Parenthood clinic or facility, and she is enrolled in Medicaid, um, you know, they are receiving, she's getting that support through reimbursement. So that's how the funding is going to Planned Parenthood through that way. And then in terms of Title X, I mean, Title X is essentially a grants program. So the money is going, um, you know, to states, um, and then grants are being dispersed to different, you know, grantees or subgrantees, And so um, that is the way that Planned Parenthood, as well as other, there are other Title X providers that also receive that money that aren't Planned Parenthood health centers. Um, and is know, Title so that, X at risk, or is it specifically oh, yeah. the money going to Planned Parenthood? Title X as a whole is at risk. And so that is an important question because um, one of the key issues or things that are actually on the table right now in terms of congressional um, action, is an effort to roll back a um, rule or regulation that was actually put into place under the Obama administration that is aimed at protecting um, Title X grantees that may be offering or supporting abortion services with non-federal funds. Um, and part of the reason why the Obama administration put that into place was to protect organizations you know, like Planned Parenthood that may be offering, again, as I stated, you know, services for abortion care through non-federal funds or non-U.S. funds. Um, And so as to they won't be discriminated against in terms of opportunities for grants because of that. And that is what we've seen in terms of sort of the attack on Planned Parenthood, where the focus has been to take away, you know, these public sources of funding um, because they are maybe providing abortion services with other funds. But it's not just an attack on Planned Parenthood. It's really an attack on, you know, other Title X grantees. So that's an important piece to put out there. Um, Title X is a program that's been in place since the 70s. Um, It was initially put into place under Richard Nixon. Um, It's been hugely popular and, you know, um, successful in terms of preventing unplanned pregnancies. Um, 
for women and people across the country. And so any attacks on Title X not only harms Planned Parenthood, but also other providers. And so is there any um, any plan that you've seen to address these needs in a way that circumvents abortion? That's going to make sure that funding's available to prevent the need for abortion? Or is it once again just pulling money out and leaving us with no solution? I mean, to be honest, we, we have not seen a solution that has been... Um, we think that is going to be successful. I mean, one of the things that Paul Ryan has put on the table is, you know, pulling funding away from um, Planned Parenthood centers and, you know, refunneling that that money to um, community health centers. And community health centers do play an important role in, the, in you know, communities as well in terms of ensuring um, access to health care for underserved communities, but they don't provide reproductive health care. Mm-hmm. And so that's the important piece to this. You know, we cannot take funding um, away from access to family planning and contraception issues, which I'll add is also on the table in terms of efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, um, when we know that access to contraception um, and family planning has huge returns, not only on individual women, but also on the broader community. If we look at... um, the um, contraceptive mandate that was put into place under the Affordable Care Act, you know, requiring coverage of contraception at little to no cost for women. Um, Women have been able to save $1.4 billion annually um, due to this provision. And so we know that there are major returns on access to contraception. So um, this isn't just about abortion anymore. It's really an attack on um, women's health care as a whole. And so we're really working hard to try to um, ensure that women have access to the health care that they need. Abortion is just a piece of the puzzle at this point. In saving women that $1.4 billion, mm-hmm. is there someone or what part of our economic system lost $1.4 billion? And is that part of the problem? I really don't think that that's part of the problem. I think that it's, I mean, some of those costs are falling um, back on, um, you know, insurers. And, um, but that's not part of the problem. I mean, the problem, the focus is on, um, you know, withholding access to health care for women. Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. Let let me rephrase that for a second. So I know what the problem is for women. This is devastating. And that um, I've seen the women around me affected both positively by the contraception mandate and negatively by the expense of providing for certain kinds of health care that happen to also be function as birth control. My question, though, go ahead. Is that, Sorry. you know, somebody once said to me, if you want to see what's driving behavior, look for where the money is. And so I'm wondering if women are no longer making that $1.4 billion out-of-pocket expense. Mm-hmm. Is the insurance lobby part of what's driving this because they're not making the profit off of women anymore? I think that, that's, I think that, that could be a part of it. I mean, another thing to... Um, I think also, too, when we sort of talk about the the contraceptive mandate and other um, preventive services, and there are a number of them that are supported under the ACA um, or required coverage for women um, that don't have any out-of-pocket costs associated with them now. Um, I think one thing to lift up is the fact that before the ACA, um, it was completely fine for insurers to charge women more for their health care than they charge men. Um, and the ACA made this um, illegal to do um, moving forward. Women tend to have more expensive health care. Um, you know, we go, we tend to go to the doctor more. You know, we've, we've talked about contraception, which can be right. very expensive. You know, some women could be paying hundreds of dollars a month um, for contraception. And so I do think part of it has been, um, you know, because now you have all of these services, including the contraceptive piece, um, that are at no cost um, or low cost. It is There is part of that um, in terms of the, the cost falling back on 
um, the insurer. So I, I would say that that's a piece of it. But, um, you know, I don't think that we should take the responsibility away from our lawmakers in terms of, um, you know, sort of working to repeal um, or, or make us go backwards in terms of the progress we've made on not only ensuring access to preventive services for women, um, putting women in a better position economically um, where they can use the money, the hundreds of dollars that they're saving per month on contraception or while women care and putting it towards their child's college education, um, which was the case for myself, actually. Um, I don't think we should take the responsibility away from them um, because we have seen so many positive, um, I think, changes in terms of you know, women as individuals, as well as the broader economy and communities in terms of, you know, what we've been able to accomplish through access to affordable health care. No. Amen. I mean, absolutely. Um, this You also pointed out a really important element here that I think ties back to reproductive justice and equality, which was I don't think many people understood that the Affordable Care Act also leveled the playing field for what women could be charged for medical care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, this was huge. Basically, it is no longer legal to discriminate against women um, because of their health care. It's no longer, you know, insurance companies can no longer charge them more, nor can they deny women um, contraception or not contraception, but they can't deny women coverage because of pre-existing conditions. So those are very important provisions as well of the ACA. And I think... Um, it's important for us to talk about the contraceptive mandate piece, but there are also these other, I think, key aspects of um, the Affordable Care Act that are at risk for being repealed. And so we should also be talking about those as well. Yeah, and they're not getting nearly enough attention in the public right, discourse. Right, exactly. Most of the attention is really around, I think, the contraceptive mandate piece and how we can lose that, which is important. Um, at the same time, I mean, there are other preventive health services like screening and testing for STIs, you know, um, also domestic violence screening. Now, through the Affordable Care Act or under the ACA, when a woman goes into her to have a well woman visit, um, she's also asked about domestic violence um, and whether or not she's at risk or she's currently undergoing that. I mean, there are huge, major changes, I think, in terms of how women access health care in a comprehensive, affordable way. Um, that we should be talking about. And all of those things are at risk right now. Access to maternity care is also huge. You know, in this country, we have maternal health disparities that are through the roof. And we're still trying to figure out why that is, particularly when we look at um, maternal health and infant health issues among black women. Um, You know, so there are just a lot of (laughs) the whole (laughs) issue around, I think, the Affordable Care Act, you know, it's it's multifaceted. But then when you talk about those efforts, as well as, you know, we're also dealing with efforts to defund Planned Parenthood. Title 10 is at risk. Um, Medicaid expansion um, is another aspect of this. So we're looking at a situation where you have all of these, you know, different sources of health care and coverage. It's clearly um, for communities and they're all at risk. <laughs> It's clearly urgent. So, Jamila, I am grateful for how much you've shared with us today. I'm even more grateful for the work that you're doing. Um, I encourage our listeners to find out more about the Center for American Progress and the work they're doing and to get involved. Thank you so much for joining us today. Jamila, thank you. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And be sure to follow our show on Twitter at BizRadio111. Special thank you to my guests, Gretchen Borschelt and Jamila Taylor. I'd also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our associate producer, Ali Freed, and our sound engineer, Danielle Bruno. I'm Laura Zarrow. And you've been listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111.